Here y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, back by the woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Back on episode 84 of In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, I talked with Ronnie Vaughn, who had been in a few Southern Gospel groups in the Indiana, Kentucky, and Illinois tri-state area back in the 1960s and early 70s. One of those groups was called the Collegiates, in which included my own father singing and playing bass. I recently twisted Dad's arm to sit down with me and give his take on their adventures. We start out talking about his earliest memories of the genre itself and its political slash theological dynamics. So my first question, when did you first hear Southern Gospel? Probably my parents had just a few records and they were partial to the Spear family. It was an old-fashioned meeting in an old-fashioned place where some old-fashioned people had some old-fashioned grace. I think maybe some Blackwood Brothers. Everybody's gonna have a legend in glory. Everybody's gonna be singing a story. Everybody gonna have a wonderful time of that. Hobie Lister and the Statesman. And listen to the Masters Radio. Get in touch with God. Get in touch with God. Get in touch with God. Turn your radio Blackwood Brothers and the Statesman, as far as I know, they were the two big boys that got everything going. And the Spears were pretty big too, but they, I think, uh, they had more scruples and morals. And I think uh, Daddy Spear, again, I don't know what they called him, Pop Spear. Pop Spear, Dad Spear. Uh, yeah. Was pretty strict, and there's a lot of nonsense he wouldn't put up with. And it may have prevented some of their success for a little bit, you know. He was. Everybody liked the guy, and they appreciated him, but he stood for what he stood, and he he was, a, I think, a godly man. The only reason he got started singing, I think, was, uh, I don't know, was in the Depression. They just didn't have any way to make a living, and they had some music, and they started doing it, then it caught on, I guess. All my loved ones I've seen, oh, what joy is waiting me when I hear Jesus say. You say he's strict. Other groups weren't strict, maybe, or? Well, he might have thought they were singing more for men's applaud. He probably was certainly more ministry oriented, and that probably kept them in churches more than stage. He may have had a problem doing stage things. Well, one thing I never realized until I was reading this book about a certain history of Southern Gospel that, you know, initially they were just singing groups. They were just providing music. They weren't a ministry per se. They weren't trying to get people saved necessarily. They're trying to encourage Christians or encourage people in the church. And so I guess there is some debate about this. Like, where does the entertainment end and the and the ministry begin? And does it have to be this or that? Well, my opinion was a lot of groups imply they're all about spreading the gospel. They may have thought that. I think they're wrong. I think they were trying to camouflage Christian entertainment for some reason that may have been frowned on that People shouldn't make a living on entertaining Christians, but I think to have entertainment for Christians is a good idea. Gospel singer, whoever it is, but for some reason it just seemed, back in those days, it just seemed like maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. 
So, you know, some groups were more tied to the church. Some of them would not take bookings where they couldn't get back to their local church. They had positions in the church. Some of them taught Sunday school. And some of them, in the early days, just believed it was wrong not to be at your local church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the acid test, you know. If you really want to know, uh, if you were thinking about promoting a group or using a group, you'd call their local church and see what the local pastor had to say about them. And they'd ask them, do they pay their tithes or whatever, you know. Wow. They realized that maybe they couldn't be in town all the time, but I don't know what the issues were, but I think uh, Pop Spare mm-hmm. probably held them back on maybe their style of dress and jewelry and makeup and things like that. And I don't know if it caused a problem with the other people, but I just know he had convictions and he stuck with them. And people appreciated him for it, but I think it, it made them hard for to promote themselves, you know. And now that's some of what I, I think kind of changed after he passed on and quit traveling. Southern gospel is pretty bouncy music. I mean, it's hard not to, you know, tap your foot or, or you know, move your head to it because it's groovy. It's, it's a mixture of probably black gospel, southern gospel, a little bit of hymns. Now, your father was a minister in a very conservative church that they didn't bounce around a whole lot, I guess is what I'm getting at. So I'm surprised that he would let y'all listen to even Southern Gospel. It's, Dad it's, believed in peppy music. Oh, he did? Okay. He, I mean, he didn't like draggy songs, but the church in the hymnal, you know, they had a good selection of all, but a gospel quartet, if you say you're, you're sharing the good news, it's hard to do that with a song about Mama got run over by a train in a pickup truck. And <laughs> <laughs> I still hear gospel groups talk about Spreading the gospel, spreading the gospel. And I just, it kind of just really makes a shiver go down my spine. I think they're trying to make it that way. I think they're Christian entertainment. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because they're just singing to Christians. They're not going to bars. Right. They, somebody may make a, bring a sinner friend. But they, you know, they can't have a relationship with these people and help them uh, struggle and live a Christian life. You know, they're in town one night and out the next. So I think they'd be better off to say they're there to encourage the believers, you know. Especially in all time, they don't really give much of an altar call. They may give some kind of watered-down thing, but, you know, they're going to go back on the bus. So when you heard this music around the house, is it something you thought you wanted to play one day? I don't think so. I don't even think my parents even had a record player that worked, <laughs> and I don't have that all going, but apparently they had some records laying around, and uh, they may have a little portable one that worked here, there, and yon, or it may have got thrown away, but at one point, when I got interested in electronics, I started gathering things and putting them together, and so we were able to play records at that point. You know, I kind of built a little stereo system, and then more records started coming along. I don't know if my mom and dad ever bought a record while we were at home, they just couldn't afford it. But as the kids started having budgets and stuff, and jobs, they were able to bring more records into the house and get more on those lines. No, I was never interested. What happened was there was a pastor at a Pilgrim Holiness Church, well-liked pastor, and he decided he was going to go into evangelism, kind of like tent revivals. And he had talked to somebody about he wanted to 
a group to go around to travel with him and be the music of his inspirational services of what they were. His friends, who they were in the Pilgrim Hall Church, there was a couple guys, I think, uh, picked up on it. These guys had already, a couple of them had already had a lot of interest in Southern Gospel. They'd been to conventions and things like that. So, and they were in college. I was still in high school. So they were kind of ahead of the game. They were out on their own and that. So when they were putting this group together, mostly was guys they knew in their own denomination that they knew from church camp and church activities. They had enough, but they couldn't find a bass singer. And uh, I think they just went to the phone book, calling through evangelical churches, you know. And one day, since I lived in the Parsonage, I remember my dad getting a call. They were asking, is there anybody in your church that sings bass? A young person. And, well, and I think dad put his hand over the thing. David, you interested in singing bass with a group or something like that? <laughs> and that's where it started. Uh-huh. You said singing bass. Singing bass. Uh, not playing bass. Cause not I... playing bass, singing bass. So these guys that called, what was their names? It would either have been Jim Loving or Richard Wilson. They were best buds. Uh, Richard Wilson was in the Pilgrim Hall in his church. Uh, Jim Loving became a good friend at college because they were both in uh, journalism class. Mm-hmm. Jim Loving was more from an independent little, small, I think, uh, Pentecostal church. But they became friends, and I think they went to some quartet conventions, and they were all, all struck on the Imperials. That's when they were coming in to be and making all the flamboyant changes and so that's what happened and they they organized a group for that purpose we never did sing for that guy oh really he was he did go into the ministry uh i don't know what happened there i don't know if we weren't what he wanted i know he when he resigned his church and went decided to go into evangelism the domination and his friends and pastors and all that they practically disowned him I mean, that was a big deal. He's doing a terrible thing. That guy's going crazy. What in the world is he doing to leave a church and go into evangelism or something? Mm-hmm. So that may have had something to do with... I don't know if he ever got it off the ground, to be honest with oh, you. Oh, so you don't know if he was successful? I think he did a few things. Okay. But he was a very uh, talented guy, very well, like, attractive guy. Had a good-looking family. They were all talented, but that part never happened. Four of us. Four. And who's the fourth? Steve Gerbig and Steve Camp. Richard was a pianist. Jim Loving was a tenor. Steve Gerbig was the lead. Steve Camp was the baritone. And I was the bass. And that was the Collegians, or was that a different name then? That was the Collegians. That was the group they picked. All of them, I think, were in college except me. Oh, that's hence the name. I always wonder that. Yeah. And there was always a mix-up. They soon realized that was a bad name because we were introduced as and here they are from Evansville College, you know. Well, we weren't <laughs> affiliated with Evansville College in any way, shape, or form. Uh-huh. Eventually, uh, Steve Gerbig got drafted into the service. It was kind of a sudden thing. And right away, they couldn't find a replacement or something. So uh, the decision was made of Steve Camp to start singing the lead part. And I started singing the baritone part. So it was actually, most of the time, it was a men's trio. A lot of the time. So most of my time was actually singing a harmony part, a baritone, you know. So eventually you guys decided to record a record. Yeah, like I say, I was a young guy. I was just along for the ride. You know, tell me where practice is and I'll show up. You were the youngest of all. I was the youngest. I enjoyed it, but I just wasn't driven like these other guys were. You know, they wanted a bus like the big guys. They wanted to 
album. They wanted this, they wanted that, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with the goals. I just, I wasn't there. You know, whatever they wanted is fine with me, you know. You had other plans for your life? I didn't have any plans. That's <laughs> 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 the best thing I had going right then. As it turned out, it worked real well, especially like when you started getting a bus. And with PA systems and things, since I had electrical knowledge, that really worked out well. And with the bus, we you know, bought just an old city bus that still had all the seats in it. Oh, it and was we, a city bus? Yeah, it was a city bus. Now, well, it was from the city. I don't know if they used it around town because it was kind of a luxury bus. It must have been one they used for private contracts or something. You know, it had the luxury seats in it and all that. But they bought that, and uh, as it turned out, since I had electrical knowledge and the most carpenter knowledge of any of them, which was none, uh, was able to fix the bus up. So I did a lot of the putting partitions in and the bunk beds and wiring up some the lighting. And we, it was a big deal to have a pole lamp there. We had an area that was kind of like a living room. We had a couch and a lazy boy and looked pretty much like a living room, but if you could make a bus look. And uh, of course the big deal was to find 12 volt light bulbs that screwed in like a regular incandescent light bulb like we have. And they were available. They were available for campers and whatnot, but they just weren't real plentiful. And we just thought we were so cool to have this pole lamp there and it had these 12 volt bulbs in there. You flip it on just like you're at home, you know? We didn't have any generator or anything. It was just 12 volt. It all worked off 12 volt and it was fine, you know? That is pretty ambitious to, to buy a bus. I mean, so they were real serious, it sounds Well, like. you know, we never gave ourselves any money. Well, the free roll offerings always went into a kitty and there was always something needed to be spent on. One funny thing about the bus is the back part of the bus was uh, bunk beds. They kind of partitioned off a section and it was just real tight. And there was two, two beds on either side of the bus, bunk beds. So that's four. And then there was one bunk bed across the back. And Jim Loving's father worked for the railroad and um, he was able to get surplus, I forget what they called them. They were a real thin mattress uh, Pushman mattresses or something they used in the trains. He was able to get some surplus ones, and that was our mattresses. And the, and they were an oddball size. Nothing fit them, you know. Once we built the, the frame two before frame beds, you know, and so I worked pretty well. You know, it's kind of hard to sleep on a bus. You know, you bounced around. But then the one guy said, "Well, we need a light back here. I'd like to do some reading before I go to sleep." Dave, can you hook up a light? So. So I think probably I can. So one weekend they parked the bus out in front of our house and I fiddled and fiddled. And sure enough, I got a little light fixture back there to work uh, over the bed, the bunk beds where people could read or something. Well, I wasn't very smart about electricity and that kind of thing. And I didn't know I had uh, tapped into the brake light line. So every time <laughs> they hit the brakes on the bus, this light came on. <laughs> Even though they had it turned off. Uh-huh. Now, when they turned it off and nobody was hitting the brake, it was off. When they turned it on, it was on. But if it was off and somebody hit the brakes, it come on. Well, we had no idea. All of a sudden, somebody comes dragging out the back, you know, eyes half glued together. Hey, this light back here keeps coming on every time you hit the brakes. Early white cake, so you'd better not I remember when we were kids, there was some incident where 
you we were locked out of something and you act like it was no big deal and you took out a pocket knife and you did something and you unlocked the door and i said well dad how did you learn how to pick a lock and you said i was in a southern gospel group <laughs> that is true there was no cell phones back then and the phones were rather limited the communication wasn't so great and even though we had somebody was setting up the engagements and times to get it was kind of hard to make last-minute changes when we was about the town or whatever, or maybe we decided we were going to sing someplace. We might get there the night early and just started to pull a bus over and sleep or something like that. Well, poor communications. Uh, a lot of times we arrived at the church and church was locked and we didn't couldn't get a hold of anybody or didn't know how anybody, but we got pretty good at opening the doors. <laughs> <laughs> because you need to set up. Yeah. Well, a lot of times we'd go and sleep on the pews because it was a whole lot better than those bunk beds. <laughs> you know, they were terrible. And, you know, if most of them didn't even connect the dots. Every now and then, someone would say, well, how'd you guys get in, you know? <laughs> we must have left the door unlocked. We, just, we never said anything. But we kept a special card in our wallets to get us in. I also remember you were telling Mom and I about sometimes if one of y'all was singing a solo by themselves, you would sit in the front row and try to mess them up? Well, some churches uh, were basically a regular service or maybe a inspiration where they'd open with a couple of congregations or something like that. A lot of times they'd ask, hey, is somebody in your group, can they lead the congregations, you know? It wasn't ever me. I wasn't didn't want to do that. But whoever was the lead singer or willing to do it, and one time it was Ronnie Vaughn that was at some church. I don't know where it was. And we were typically on the front row waiting our time to sing, you know, and being the clown I was, I'd <laughs> sit there with and cross my eyes and look straight at him and sing. <laughs> Try to crack him up. Of course, you know, it was all he could do to keep from... That was mean, but... <laughs> that was that was me. <laughs> and bus they told us it had a beauty straight eight engine in it it was an eight cylinder but it was a straight eight it wasn't a v8 whatever that well i know what it means but it was a big engine to push that bus down the road i mean it was an old engine back and everything was old technology and so it was hard to keep up of course it was worn out when we bought it that's the reason they got rid of it the bus was matter of fact we bought the bus and went for a ride down the lloyd expressway or pennsylvania was that time we didn't get about a mile out of town, it broke down. <laughs> well, our first ride, it broke down. <laughs> Were you guys sick in your stomachs? Like, like, oh man. Like I said, I was just, I wasn't responsible for anything, so it didn't bother me that much. You know, I was agreeing with whatever they did. Believe it <laughs> back then I used to agree with people. <laughs> but they found somebody on uh, South Barker, a good old guy. He was a tinker, a retired guy, but he, he'd work on old things and just... He just loved the pitter and patter. He'd only get to work on it. I forget his name. But uh, anyway, he even allowed us to have a little spot there to park it when we didn't have a place to park it. There are times when you get down in Kentucky, we didn't know it, but sometimes you come to a river and you had to wake up the guy on the hill and come get his ferry started to get the bus across really? the water. And, you know, and they look at it, the bus, and say, well, I don't know if that'll call over or not. We just take three cars at a time, you know. <laughs> 
things like that, you know, but that's the way it was. There was nothing about getting the guy out of bed to get the ferry across. I mean, that's the way he lived his life. But at least one time showed up at the wrong church and didn't know it and had our equipment set up. It was a Sunday night service and of course we didn't need keys to get in. So we, we, were, <laughs> we were in and set up and somebody moseys in and said something about, he starts, you know, being inquisitive and say, yeah, we're supposed to sing here tonight or something like that. And, and they finally put it together and said, well, well that, we're at the wrong church, you know. <laughs> and we realized it was a block away. It was oh, kind of okay. confusing. So we started tearing down. They said, well, you can stay here and sing if you want to, but, you know, we couldn't do that. But we had trouble in some of the rural areas just turning the bus around. You had to be careful. You, you're always scared about if you were trying to find your way around and if you missed a turn, you were trying to take some back roads you back, you just knew you were going to get in a dead end or a real narrow street where you couldn't turn that thing around. Always a, a built-in fear, you know. Right. I can tell one, I don't want to be, I don't want anybody to take offense at it, but they did a lot of singspirations, they call it. They just, like the Sunday night service, they would let people, anybody that wanted to, come in and sing a song and eventually they'd have the feature group, you know, do their thing, you know. And so that was the case of this one church. And uh, some lady came up to us before the service says, now Jim Bob or somebody's gonna sing and he's, he's retarded and we wanna let you know ahead of time so you know you won't make fun of him. I thought that, that's odd, we wouldn't make fun of anybody. Right. But she'd already told us, already programmed us to be ready. Yeah. But uh, we didn't laugh at the guy, but it, his style of singing was so bizarre and the song he sang was, Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow. And of course, his English wasn't very good. But every phrase was in a different key. That's, that was the part that amazed us. Every phrase was in a different key. And it was kind of like, Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. Every phrase was a different pitch. Uh -huh. And that was enough to make you laugh whether the guy was retired or not, just the way he sang, you know. That'd be hard for a trained singer to do. Yeah, yeah, he, uh, he was talented, I guess. We was at one church, and we had just made a new album, probably our first one. And of course, we were proud as could be of those things. And back then, a lot of churches didn't believe in buying and selling on Sunday, especially inside the church itself. And uh, we were at a church on Sunday, and all the guy, the MC, just mentioned, he said, we just uh, made a new record and uh, we don't want to sell them to you on Sunday, but if you want to write your name on a piece of paper and give it to you, we'll see that you get a copy, uh, you know, not do business on Sunday because we knew they would defend them. You know, this guy jumped up and he caused a big scene right there in the church service, really. Like I said, we weren't even proposing selling anything, but boy, he got mad. He stood up and says, we don't believe in selling on Sunday. And uh, the local preacher took over and stuck up for us and said, you know, they didn't do that. All they did was, and you know, we needed to pipe down and the guy got mad, he got mad. Right there in the public service, you know, you can imagine how we felt, you know. And the guy told the preacher, you quit throwing snowballs from the pulpit. <laughs> what he said. <laughs> he got up and marched out the church. What are you talking about throwing a cold blanket on your your Love Lifted Me song, your special <laughs> encore song, that did it. Well, I was naive at that time. I, I thought everybody in church got along. You know, we lived in the parties, and they had uh, every church had a church board. And, of course, Dad would go to board meetings, and 
and, you know, take care of business. And I just thought everything was hunky-dory and people were nice to you. And come to find out that wasn't the case. And this guy was just a down, outright, rude, hard-to-get-along-with guy, tried to run the church and everything. I didn't know that at the time, you know. So I was completely in shock. When others when turn me down, down, my Lord, remember, remember We did our practicing pretty much in the Pilgrim Holiness Church there on the west side, Forest Hills Pilgrim Holiness Church. That was before they changed their name to Wesleyan Church, you know. That was the home church of the piano player. And uh, the other two of the other guys were Pilgrim Holiness at other branches. And so, you know, you need a church and a piano. We practiced there most of the time. Then I think at one time, since we kind of saw that we weren't going to be this with these evangelists that was a host pastor there, that we did more practicing at the piano player's house. They had a, a larger living room and they had a piano, of course, because he was uh, taking piano lessons or giving piano lessons, I don't know what. But anyway, one of those times at the Pilgrim Holiness Church, I don't know, we decided, we, uh, one of our members had it, went and bought a real to recorder, it was a Tanberg. And uh, I didn't know nothing about nothing. I never heard of real real tape recorders. But it was a German-made one, and I guess in its day it was a good one. It was a Tanberg, but uh, the uh, VU meters, they weren't like a zero to ten. Like it was these little Nixie um, tubes. I don't know what they call them. They're just little eyes that go together. You, anyway, he had that. We decided we was going to record. You know, got the broad idea was we were going to record some things. Well, we did. We record some songs. And then uh, actually recorded the songs with Richard playing the piano. Then the organ was over there, so they said, well, let's put some organ on there. And uh, then uh, was this some, multi-track? No, it was it was a, it was two-track, and uh, I don't remember. There was a lot of talk about sound on sound or sound with sound. I don't know what we did. It must have been sound with sound or something. Very crude, whatever it was. Well, there was a bass, upright bass there too in the church, and I said, "Well, why don't we put bass on there? Well, you think you can do it?" I said, "I think I can." Never <laughs> played one in my life. <laughs> so I, I get with the piano player and I get some masking tape and. I marked some notes with the key where we're going to be, and I said, where's the G? And, and we, I'd pluck it till I find a G, and i put a piece of masking tape there, G, you know. Mm -hmm. And I marked the bass all up. I couldn't hold it up and pluck it at the same time, so I laid it down on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> My fingers are too weak to hold to push the strings down, you know, like a, you do it. Uh -huh. So I put it down on the floor, and I pushed down on my thumb and plucked the thing, uh -huh. and we, that was our first recording. Wow. And uh, we took that to a radio station. We just knew they were just going to be so excited about playing that. <laughs> they just they they were politely about it, but we were disappointed. We just knew they were going to play it every Sunday morning. They passed on it. Huh? They passed. It was Wiki. Uh, <laughs> they weren't very progressive at that time anyway. But so I don't know if it was that point or some other point they got the fever to record. You know, does that recording still exist as far as you know? I don't know. Did you put it on a vinyl or on just the real? No, reel? just on reel to reel. Okay. And you know, it was just a one shot thing. Right. I hit a few bad notes, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> but we were impressed. Yeah. We have been singing and practicing with the piano to have an organ in the background, and have bass. Man, that was. I mean, that was a full spectrum. We had it. You know? <laughs> but there again, uh, Jim Loving was the, kind of the manager, and him and Wilson. Richard Wilson were the the kingpins, and they did a lot of talking and 
research and what. I mean, they were just ate up with it. And uh, somehow they come across the studio, Crusade Studio in Illinois, and they set up a time to go over and record. And uh, I do remember that, yeah. And there again, it was reel to reel. And I don't know if you used two track or not. You know, it was a one take thing. I mean, if that one was messed up, you did another take. There was nothing they could go back and fix. The only thing he did do, and we were just amazed, he chopped the introduction off of one song and put it on one cut and put it on another cut. He did it with a razor blade. He keyed it up and stopped it and cut it and and then he played it back, you know, and we were amazed. We couldn't hear a thing. It was just seamless. It seemed like it was just high tech back then, buddy. Mm -hmm. Scotch tape. But it was pretty primitive. They had one good musician that he had hired there that was a studio musician. He could play just about anything, but he couldn't do them all at the same time. <laughs> at that time, I wasn't playing bass. So they had a studio guy there. He could play about anything. Of course, Richard played the piano, and this guy played the organ, this other guy. And then they had a girl come in, a young teenage girl, and uh, she was a bass player. And so she played bass. And uh, they always teased her, I guess she's about my age. And uh, one of the songs we uh, sang, we cut, was a Dolly Rambo song, uh, He Looked Beyond My Faults and Saw My Needs. Well, they changed it that I was looking beyond her faults and saw her knees. <laughs> Berdella. What a name. I'll never forget the name. Berdella. Was she a looker? She was over my class. Okay. Over my class. I think she had a big football boyfriend. But she flirted with me enough to get my... Get y'all frustrated. Get, yeah. I, I knew that, that I was in her league. But anyway, Berdella, I guess they were able to go back and add something, but they said they wanted a drum on something. Well, they didn't have any drums. And I don't know what got it, how these guys did it, but... They took a songbook, and I think they laid it on her lap, and she had a set of brushes, and she just she just struck that songbook. They played around with the microphone and different pieces of paper and went up till they got a little bit of a snare sound. We convinced ourselves it sounded like a drum, but it didn't. It sounded like somebody beating on the handle with sticks. <laughs> <laughs> but with the organ and the bass and everything, you know. What happened to her? Well, she was working on some kind of singing contest. And uh, I remember Ray Harris, he was the owner of Harris of uh, Crusade. Ray Harris was in a trio. He was, uh, they traveled for a while, him and his sisters, wife and sisters. And he was one of these tall guys, looked like uh, J.D. Sumner, had a little thin mustache, looked like a gangster, kind of like. <laughs> but uh, he, I think one of them played an upright bass, and they, they, they made their ways around town, you know, singing. Uh, then I guess, I don't know why they decided to go into recording. I guess he had ideas about a recording studio, so he ordered this recording. He opened this recording studio, and they didn't, I don't think they traveled so much. They were called the, uh, well, they were called the Crusaders, I think. Uh, but the one thing I never liked about him, he put so much echo on everything. And I even said <clears throat> something about it. And he got a little ticked off that I would criticize. 
Because we were as a group, we'd get together. Well, we think, we think, were you happy with everything? And I think I said, well, I think there's way too much reverb on. I think it sounds terrible. Uh, you sound like you guys are singing in the bottom of a well. Yeah. So then they, they brought it to the engineer. He said, can you turn? And he was offended. He said, well, that's, that's the future. That's the way the future is. So we lived with it. But if you find any Crusader record that was made over there, unless they changed later on, almost all of them had this ungodly <laughs> reverb on there. You know, this is, that's the way he did it, and he was hard-headed, and I guess that's the way it was going to be. Mm -hmm. You didn't tell him what to do. But he had us convinced, well, that's the way all the rock and roll bands do, you know. Oh, rock and roll, that's what we want to do, you know. So. Yeah. But you, that was the first one. That was an upstairs. Downstairs, they had a family business. They had a record shop and things like that, mm -hmm. you know. Upstairs was a studio. You recorded in a funeral home, or you tried to. Yeah, uh, I remember at some point in time, Jim came to one of our practices and said, hey, I found out this old um, Johan funeral home has been shut down for years, but this guy has bought it and made a recording studio out of it. Did it smell like embalming fluid and all that stuff? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. But it was creepy. You walk in, <laughs> it was kind of like one big room, and they had partitioned these big, felt like uh, high school auditorium curtains, you know, those big, thick, burgundy I won't say velvet, but whatever that material was, you know, curtains. And I guess, you know, if they had a small crowd, they would pull those and make a small, uh, where they had the, the chamber or whatever it was. Like a viewing room or? Yeah, whatever. Parlor. Yeah. And then if they wanted a big one, they could make it bigger or they could have two or three medium size. I mean, they would made it real flexible. They didn't have partitions and separate rooms like they got nowadays. They just were able to work with these curtains and... Um, we were in Paro 3 or 4 and 5. <laughs> <laughs> so those were so, the re recording booths, more or less. Yeah, so, you know, the idea was, well, the big boys, you know, they got partitions and and uh, sound deading material to isolate the different instruments so they, you know, they could have more control over that the volume of that instrument rather than just everybody playing in the same room. So they put me over by one curtain with a a microphone on my bass guitar, and I guess they had Richard in one with the piano, and I guess the guys sang in the other, I'm not, you know. So we were in different parlors, and we found out, I don't know, that night or later on, the main recording engineer that worked for this guy that had all the money and the funds, that bought the building and set it up, the main guy that knew all about recording, he and, him and the boss had had words, and the guy had walked out on him, maybe the day before, and there was this big issue about the compressor. Who's going to turn on the compressor? I thought, what's the... I didn't understand the technology back then, but I just remember all this murmuring, well, without that guy, no one knows how to turn on the compressor. You know, it wasn't an air compressor. It was a compressor for the sound, you know. But this guy, we didn't know it, or it wasn't real well publicized, but the owner decided he wasn't going to let his uh, wayward employee show him. So he decided he was going to record and I think we caught wind from the engineer that well, he don't know what he's doing. You're going to be disappointed or something like that. But we were set up, had the appointment, and we decided to live with it, you know. And I don't know if we ever got the compressor going or not. But <laughs> <laughs> it was a big topic of discussion, you know. I visualized this great big thing on the wall, and you had to sink it in and certain switches, you know. Nowadays, the compressor is pretty basic, pretty simple, you know. You know, they made a few cuts, a few recordings, and nothing just sounded right. I can't remember what the problem was. It just... I don't know if the balance wasn't right or you didn't have the right microphones. I don't know. I don't even think I even went in the uh, the recording room. I don't know what kind of equipment he had. I didn't know. I didn't care probably, you know. But anyway, it was pretty hideous. 
So we kind of had a little power. I think we decided to quit and come back and do something another night. We, I think we ran out of time. And I remember we met out in the street, standing around our cars, and uh, what do you think, guys? It's not coming out too good. You know, we want to come back. What night we can get together for, you know, try to wrap, get some more going on this. And and I don't know if several of them voiced complaints about something wasn't right, you know, wasn't sounding right. And uh, I said, well, I... I think we ought to pay him for what we owe him and then go on back to Crusader. And uh, some of them really didn't think we ought to pay the guy anything. I said, well, you know, to be fair about it, pay him what his rate is and and we'll just chalk it up to experience. And they went along with it. So they went back and paid the guy and said, bye. Uh -huh. And they made an appointment with, with Crusade. And there we lowered our standard again. You know, we're trying to get above this well, this big echo thing. <laughs> <laughs> and save a little money and it didn't turn out. Right. So from life's careless sweet recording session that went terrible but the photographs turned out really great that's that one those pictures there were in the funeral home from a little dab of goodness yeah okay yeah they are pretty great yeah it kind of does look like you guys are in a funeral home it's pretty dark and ominous i don't know why i see this acoustic stuff here on top i wouldn't think it would be normally part of a funeral home but you can see right there that looks like a good condenser microphone the vocals were using mm -hmm. i don't remember what they had on the the instruments, but it looks like it had at least one good denture mic if it could get the compressor on. <laughs> but anyway, that was that, you know, and I say, I, I didn't know when I went to bed, I didn't think anything about it, you know. <laughs> now, the membership started to change over, over the time, so Richard left, right? Well, yes, he did. I don't know if he just got tired of it or what. Actually, Richard wasn't ever on any of our albums. He kind of missed out on that. But he was replaced by... Clyde Wheeler from Madisonville, Kentucky. Okay. He was down there in a single assembly of God Church, and I don't know, he was in sales or something. But he decided to move to Evansville to be with the group, and we thought that was odd because we weren't full-time, wasn't even thinking about it. But he was able to get a good job with Keebler. It, was a, it turned out being a big deal for him. I mean, a good deal. He got a house and moved up here, and the kids went to school, and he had a good job with Keebler. And, Keebler, the cookie company? Uh -huh. Really? Yeah, he was a salesman with Keebler. Uh -huh. And uh, I think he enjoyed that career, you know. Uh, and then eventually... Well, I'm foggy about a lot of this. But I know Steve went to the service. I think he was about the first one to leave. But he's on this first. You guys don't put the years well, on these records. It. Well, so we don't... It well, we started out with 100. Okay. And then we just made up numbers as we went. We didn't want to start with zero. <laughs> wow. So these are made up... Uh, numbers, yeah. <laughs> as if. You never start with zero. You start with something. Steve Gerbig had went to the Army and Richard had quit. I don't know if Steve came out of the service, and then Steve Camp left or something, then we got Ronnie Vaughn. He was from Madisonville. I don't know if he knew Clyde or how that connection was or not. Yeah, when I talked to Ronnie, he said Clyde had known him. They had done some stuff together, done some funerals together. I see. But there was a guy, intermediate somewhere, he was a lead singer. Probably when we first, Steve went to the service, his name was Michael Hubry. He was a good singer. He was a good singer, but... He was uh, more interested in, uh, there's a four square church there in Evansville. And he wanted to be more involved in that. 
they had some evangelists there. He had some tent revivals and they traveled around. And so that ended up not working out, but he was a good singer. In your time with the Collegiates, did you guys play with some of the big names at the time? We did, very seldom. We were always nervous about, we didn't pay for our copyrights and our songs that we recorded, and you're supposed to. <laughs> and we didn't like singing with some of the groups that wrote some of those songs. We were afraid they'd see our albums and realize we hadn't paid our copyright to them. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one place, it was whatever group J.D. was in. J.D. Sumner? J.D. Sumner. Oh, man. And there was some song that we had recorded, and they were scared to death. He was going to look at it. Of course, we don't put the credits on here. That's another way to get around that, I guess, isn't it? <laughs> and supposedly, one of the guys, of course, you know, who would, why would they be interested in us? Uh -huh. You know, we were just a fly. Story was, somebody thought they saw J.D. looking at the back of our record. Oh, no, he's going to go to jail, you know. <laughs> they, J.D. was going to sue us. We never heard anything about it. You know, I don't know whether he did look at it or didn't, didn't care or what. Uh -huh. or, you know, they wouldn't. You know how the copyright business, you wouldn't know who paid copyright and who didn't. Right. Unless you went back and checked. And of course, our sales wouldn't have given him much. How many did you guys get printed up of these things? Well, that's another story. The first album, I think maybe 500. So we had them, you know, pressed or whatever from a Crusader, all of a sudden, uh, one Jim shows up to one of our rehearsals and says, you know, Ray Harris just called me, and according to our contract, we gotta buy 500 more, seat, more records. Well, we hadn't sold the first 25 yet. <laughs> and we said, what? He said, well, when we signed the contract, it's in there, I read it, I didn't know it was in there. We thought he was trying to rip us off. But we found out, that was a customary of the day, that I think a small artist, like when they went to the pressing, they had to probably pay for a thousand of them. So he would cut you a deal and sell you 500. He still kept the other 500. Oh. Give you some time in a few years and you had to buy them off of him. Right. Which sounds okay once you hear it that way. Uh -huh. But all we got was this story is, we were obligated to buy 500 more records and we didn't have any money and didn't want them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, we had a, had a contract, and we just, we're off the bat, we just, Jim was all upset. I think he just thought the guy was putting it to us, you know. Well, when it's all figured out, well, it was in the contract for one thing, and it wasn't sneaky. It was, what do they call that? It was, a, it was an industry standard, you know. It wasn't anything unusual. But I just remember that panic, you know, having to buy those extra records. And mm -hmm. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you about... A couple of musicians are on your records. This couple, Gloria and Jerry Glore. Yes. Now, now Jerry Glore, at least in the tri-state area, some people might remember he was a, a character on some commercials for Raven Raven Tire. Tires. It, there was these two kind of comedic guys, Ray and Ben, as uh, a la Ray, Raven, and he was one of them. Yeah, they had uh, they were hillbillies. They had coveralls. And the guy that paid the part of Ray, R.A., he had a big R.A. painted on his coveralls. And then um, Jerry Glore, he was Ben, B-E-N. And I thought he, they were employees of Raven Tire, but it turned out he was never an employee. I don't know if the other guy was or not, but 
Yeah, they hired them to make these real corny commercials. Mm -hmm. They were hillbillies. And they did things like uh, corn skiing. Well, they go through the cornfield and they pull uh, the car would pull the guy on skis and he would ski on top of corn stalks, you know. Uh. <laughs> well, when they lay it down and wet, they were slick. Oh, know? I think even on the tops of them when they no, were standing. No, 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 okay. No, no. And one time they uh, filled a convertible full of water and uh, made their car a water tub. Or I don't know what the, you know, they had some kind of a tagline that was a pun, whatever it was. Uh -huh. and they were sitting in there. Portable pool, or what it was, goofy things like that. And it yeah. was well known in the tri-state area because they were, they were good and funny. Yeah. You know, didn't they, they wear like airplane goggles or hats? They or probably did anything to make them look goofy. Yeah, they yeah. did probably did. Yeah, like the early from the right. Red Baron era. Right, yeah, yeah, flappy. I think one of them had a flappy fuzzy hat, and one of them had the goggles, like you're saying. Yeah. I'm being speaking for Raven Tire on how to save gas. You can save gas by using radial tires from Raven Tire. Yeah, and you can save gas with a tune-up at Tune-Up Tech. Yeah, and you can save gas by getting in a carpool. This here carpool's gonna save us a lot of gas. Man, maybe carpool will save us some gas, but sure gonna be cold this winter. Raven Tire! Gloria, she was a good musician in her own right. She was. I'm not sure if which one or both were uh, raised in church, and I think both or one of them parents was a, a pastor in a church, so they were raised in the church. But yeah, they were very very sought after. They played a lot of country music, and there was some local country show on TV back in the old black and white days. I think it was called Country Hoedown or something, where you know every Saturday morning or sometime Saturday. They had a little studio thing where they play some music. The Glores played on that. She was a, a very good bass player, had a good voice, and, and uh, Jerry was a good guitar player. He just could do some phenomenal things. Did they record yeah. records also? I'm sure they did. They, at various times, had different groups. At one time, they hooked up with the, the Moore guy that had more music. I mm -hmm. forget what his name was. He was a very accomplished drummer. And I think they called themselves the Preacher's Kids. They did have a group called the Preacher's Kids. Because huh. I guess all of them were children of a, a pastor somewhere. And they did some gospel music, but then they would play with on some country recordings too. But they never did it full time. It was always something, their hobby. So, you know, this, they had other things. But Glory was a nurse of some sort. She worked at uh, Boonville Convalescent, that nursing house on the south side there sometimes. Mm -hmm. And Jerry, I forget what he did. He told me a few times. But. <laughs> oh, yes, the answer's on the way, this I know. Jesus said it, I believe it, and it's so. Our heavenly Father knows the need before we pray. And we can rest assured the answer's on the way. The next couple of segments is going to go back and forth between my dad and mom, recorded separately. It seems they remember certain events a little differently. But my bass guitar, I found an amp somewhere. It was just an old Radio Shack stereo amp, but it had a lot of good bass and stuff. And I took it made a plywood set of speakers that just barely fit in the back seat of my 57 Chevy. And I took up the whole back seat height and just plain plywood with two 12-inch speakers in it. And that was my bass guitar. I, that's what I traveled on the road, plain old plywood. I think I eventually painted it, but... It was pretty crude. I'm surprised they even had me go this big old plywood box for speakers, you know. 
Now, I seem to remember a story about when you and mom were dating that you guys went to some kind of camp revival or something, and her parents were there, and maybe offhandedly you said, well, I can give you a ride home, and and uh, maybe her parents wanted to come along, get a ride also with you, but, but they couldn't hardly fit because it was a bass guitar amp in the back seat or something? That might have been. I'll have to ask mom about that. Okay. But, you know, at that time they had uh, zone meetings or something like that, or where the church would pack up and go to another church, and they'd have some kind of uh, inspirational service, maybe have a special speaker come in, they'd take account who had the most people come from this church, that church, and the other. I think we went to one of those, and I think they traveled on a bus, a school bus. I drove up there, either I couldn't make it on the bus or didn't want to get on the bus, I don't know. And so, of course, I was chasing mom at that point, <laughs> and... Uh, and I think I enticed her with, you know, if you don't want to ride that bus back, I can take it home in my car. <laughs> and, of course, she was just, I don't know if she was 15 or 16. She was really young. <laughs> and uh, I, th I don't know if her parents rode with us or not. Maybe her mom did. I don't know if we could not get them all in, but for some reason they did let us. Her mom may have, you have to, I'll have to check out with mom. But. Okay. We rode the church bus with a bunch of other kids and people. And um, When you say we all the people from our church. It was Grace Church of the Nazarene, uh -huh. and uh, everybody got on the bus and rode to uh, the camp, which was in Boonville. And, really? Uh-huh. We went to a different Nazarene church every night, so they had one in, in the Boonville. And then after church, he asked me could I ride home with him so I didn't have to ride home on the bus. Well, I guess my parents kind of wanted to ride home, too, because they didn't want to ride home on the bus, because mom said the bus hurt her back so i don't know if dad offered or they just asked themselves or what so he said sure so but he got out to the car and realized his bass guitar amp was filling up the whole back seat it was, nice car right yeah it was uh, maroon metallic it was really pretty with black interior when it ran when it ran <laughs> so um he had to take the out and uh, put it in the trunk so my dad could sit in the back seat and they were like the, the seats that fold up so mom couldn't crawl in the back seat so she had to sit up in the front so I was sat by David and um, mom sat on the other side of me so it gave me an excuse to sit close so he didn't mind that part of the ride <laughs> so. so your legs were touching almost <laughs> close <laughs> so I, if I recall correctly when we let my parents out and we went and got a little snack at a place called Sir Beef. Um, wow. He um, told me I didn't have to scoot back over. <laughs> really? Wow, that old dog. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that I, I don't know if I'm getting the story straight, but when it comes up that when I was first born, I guess we were all still living in a trailer. And mom says that the only reason that y'all were still living in a trailer in Henderson was because you had bought a bass guitar amp and were still paying on it or it messed finances up somehow. Now, is that... I hope that wasn't the case. So she's blaming my bass guitar for <laughs> financial... Straight. It was something like that. Like you had, you had had plans to move into a house, but your bass guitar amp had kind of had uh, bumped that back a little bit. Oh, well, I'd like to clear that up. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> if it's if it's true, it's true. You know, I, I can't argue with that. Yeah. But I did have a bass guitar, and I did go in debt for one. 
and then I got drafted. And they were hounding me a little bit. Well, there is a, a law or something where if you're in the service, you go in the service and it puts you in a financial hardship, they have to wait till you get back out of the service and get a job before they can start. They just have to, I think they can collect interest maybe. Huh. But you're basically are free and clear until you serve your time and you have to pay. But I think what I did was, that was our first experience with the credit union. I was out in San, Sandy area, Air Force Base, taking my training, my advanced training for the service. Uh, it was Albuquerque, New Mexico, but Sandia Air Force Base. And uh, I remember a co-worker mentioned something about the credit union there. And he says, yeah, you can consolidate all your loans. You know, all your loans go back home. They can consolidate them and your payment is a whole lot lower that way. And so I went and checked on it, sure enough. So I think I had a car payment. I mean, a base guitar payment. That's probably about it. <laughs> but we, I did, it made the payments more manageable. Uh-huh. Now, maybe I was still paying on that when we got, I'm not sure. I would like to, I'd like to hear that story because I don't remember it that way. Yeah, it was the, the bass guitar amp that he used to play for his group, the collegiate. Uh-huh. And um, when he went in the service, he probably quit making payments. And then when he got out, they started sending in the bills. So we needed a place quick to live because uh, he was going to be going overseas to Korea so he wanted a place for me and you Mm -hmm. to live and so we we bought the trailer and could not find a trailer park in Evansville that would let us park it in it because it was a small trailer and then one place I called and the lady found out he was in the service and she says no way I'm written to a service person I got off the phone and cried. And Why would she say something like that? Because servicemen generally probably were known to be partiers and drinkers and uh-huh. stuff like that. And I'm like, ah, he's a preacher's son. He doesn't drink. We don't drink. We don't party. Mm-hmm. But so the only place we could find was like in Henderson, Kentucky. So we moved a trailer over to Henderson to, to live in while he was in Korea. Did it bring you comfort that even though you're living in a super small trailer in Kentucky, that at least Dad had some groovy bass lines playing? <laughs> I guess, but our, our first house, we didn't have any uh, dressers or anything like that, but we had a brand new um, piano we bought, <laughs> made, made, made payments on that piano, because music was important part of his life, and, and I went along with whatever he wanted. So Back then, I think uh, wages for uh, going to the service was less than $100 a month. I think it was $97. Being married, $97 a month wasn't too much. Mm-hmm. I know that Right off the bat, she wanted to get a house, and I, I didn't understand that. I didn't. I thought, well, we got the trailer was pretty nice. It didn't have any furniture, but it was pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and she said, well, when we start having kids, you know, we're gonna need more room. And of course, you know, I was just a stupid kid. Uh-huh. I, I didn't think about it. I, I had a bass guitar. That's what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know how she convinced me. I think I just said, okay, well, I'll go along with it. So I don't know if her and her dad or what, or we started looking at houses and found that house on Barn removed. But I don't remember my bass guitar being a hold-up. <laughs> she may have told you that on the slide. <laughs> Things were tight. They were tough, and, you know, that's, that's possible. But I sure don't remember that. I'm sure if she had a burn in her saddle, she remembered it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I didn't know I was... You know, you know, I was probably selfish, self-centered, didn't think that much about it, you know, uh-huh. if it was. Uh-huh. But if I was already financially obligated for it, she came along, there wasn't much I could do about it. But uh-huh. it was the best thing we ever did, get out of a mobile home. Right. You know. <laughs>
It's been over 50 years since you were in the group. You're telling these stories that are mostly fond memories. Are you glad you did it? I'm glad I did it. You know, actually most things, even going to the service, I wasn't keen on it. I mean, I really didn't want to go. But, you know, in the end, it all worked out and, and had good results and benefited me. I'm glad I did it. But I come to a point where I realized, through observing other groups and other things, you know, I wasn't qualified to be a full-time musician, but I knew that would be the end of a marriage. It would, could not be a good marriage, being gone on the road all the time. I never could understand how evangelist, what we consider a good evangelist, could be a, so far away from home for a long period of time and have a good relationship with her wife. I always questioned if their wife was better off with them out of the house or what was going on. And, you know, I may have wanted to do that some more, but I wasn't that driven about it. And I just knew that, you know, I had a job and to take care of that job and not be asking for time off and all that, that, you know, that was over. Now the other guys went on after you left and uh, eventually they became the Good Time Singers. I was excited, you know, I realized they had finally found a much better recording studio and, you know, we're doing much better than we did, you know, mm -hmm. ever did. It just, yeah. uh, well, they had better voices, they had more money and they went full time and tried to make a go of it, you know. Yeah. When they went to Benson and got away from Crusader, that was a big, you know, they, they, I thought they had some respectable albums at that point, some yeah. better songs. And you still talk to the guys? Oh yeah, when I, when I get a chance, you know. Yeah. Before you were all married, he was in this group, and you got to see him perform? Yes, uh, he invited me to come over and watch him at, they played at like a high school auditorium in Illinois, and it was the Collegiates and a couple other groups that were having a scene fest or whatever, and um it was pretty cool to watch your love of your life up on the stage uh, playing that bass guitar and all these other girls swooning over really? and stuff. And, you know. So there was other girls <laughs> yeah. making eyes at that? Yeah. Really? <laughs> and at that Traveling Youth Revival, there were other girls that had their eye on him. And then when they saw that he showing attention to me, they went, oh, man. Really? <laughs> yeah. So. Did you stick your tongue out at it? Like, yeah. No. Nah. <laughs> cool. So. Did you listen to the records oh, when he was over gone? over and over and over and over. I played those things like sure. crazy. Yeah, oh. warm out. Oh, that's sweet. So. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store, and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Well, one can't come from a charity now. Gotta make two hands somehow. Don't let this man try to turn me around. He's on the dime.